Our scripture reading for this morning is from the book of 2 Peter. I'm going to read from chapter 1, verse 19, over to chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who, brought, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, Heather. Hey, there's my phone. Grant, I was going to text you. Can you add in that first Peter passage? Can you add? I think it's 18, 21. Can I have 18, 20, and 21? I don't have to text you now. <laughs> okay. Let's get down to work. But before we do, let's, let's pray. Father, and we want to pray like Jesus taught us to pray. You are our Father in heaven. We want to acknowledge that we're your kids. We're needy kids. And our request this morning is that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not in some abstract way, but in a very real way in this space and in our hearts and in our relationships. May your kingdom come and may your will be done. May we submit to your kind kingly rule and may you restore what is broken according to the will of heaven. Father, we pray that you'd give us this morning the nourishment that our souls need for another day, another week, living in a broken kingdom, the already, not yet. Jesus, you've come and you're restoring and you're renewing and we look forward to your return, but we live in the messy middle. And please help us to see that you are our life and give life to our souls today. I pray that you would incline our hearts to forgive those who have sinned against us this week. Uh, we tend to be stingy with forgiveness and grace. I tend to be stingy with forgiveness and grace, especially for people closest to me. But I pray that you would incline our hearts to forgive in the same way that you generously forgive us through Jesus. Father, I pray that you would lead us away from temptation and deliver us from evil. You know how quickly our feet are to run away from you, our good Father, and we run into those shadows seeking life. Pray that you would rescue us from that temptation today and remind us your kingdom, your power, your glory, so that we are rescued from the tendency that we each have when we get out of bed and put our feet on the floor to live for our own little kingdoms, to build our own little kingdoms, to live for our own power, our own fame, or our own glory, and to live under a foolish notion of our own uh, perception of power that we think we have. So please set us free from these things in the reminder that it's your kingdom 
your power, and your glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we press on in our series this morning entitled Family Reminders, Enduring Gospel Realities. We're exploring the short New Testament letter of 2 Peter. And honestly, we could just preach a sermon on the title and it would be really life-giving to us because the theme of Peter and the theme of, of our series presupposes an idea that we are a forgetful people. How many of you feel like you are a forgetful Christian? All right, good. I appreciate your honesty, right? We regularly forget very important realities, who we are, who God is, why we exist. I mean, very foundational things that you think we would remember, but we forget. And so Peter writes this letter to remind us. We see that in verse, uh, here's just one example, verse 14, 15. He says, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So why does the letter of 2 Peter exist? Because we're a forgetful people. Why does the Bible exist? Because we are a forgetful people. Guys, that's really good news about the kind of father that we have. You would, I mean, if generation forgot, 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 multiple times within a generation, feels like God would be pretty justified to just wash his hands and be like, I tried with you all and I'm done. I'm done. I don't need you. I'm done. Instead, our kind father, knowing we would be a forgetful people, writes us a bunch of letters that are passed down from generation to generation. That's how kind your father is. He knows you're forgetful, and he does the best thing for you. He wrote you a letter. And so that's why we have the Bible. That's why we have Second Peter. Enduring gospel realities, right? These are truths that shape lives generation after generation. These things never change, though the world may change around us. These gospel realities are meant to shape our lives, and they never, ever, ever change. Uh, so three weeks ago, three Sundays ago now, Ron Koya opened up our series. One of our pastors, Ron Koya, opened up, and he reminded us of one enduring gospel reality. You remember what it is? First test to see if we're forgetful people or not. You remember? You remember? Look at that. We really are forgetful people, huh? <laughs> Don't tell Ron. He's on the child check-in station next door. Actually, we should all go next door and tell him later. Um, he reminded us that Jesus personally called us into the Father's family. And he reminded us that we don't work to get in the family. We don't work to stay in the family. But when we realize the beauty of what we have been given to be sons and daughters of the Father, it unlocks this drive this passion to work out and to grow in the faith that God has given us, okay? But Jesus, that's the first reminder, Jesus called us into his family. Last week was Darren, so that's only seven days ago now. What was the reality that he reminded us of? I hear notes turning. All right, I'll give it to you. But let the record show, we are a forgetful people, right? Let the record show. Darren showed us that Jesus is returning, and while we wait for him living in this broken world, we are not blind and we are not hopeless. He has given us his word, which is trustworthy, and we can wait with confidence as we look to Jesus' word. And then, man, if you missed it, you missed a great class on Thursday. John Holmes, our deacon of apologetics, taught a class on the reliability of the scriptures. And if you have any questions about the reliability of the Bible, I encourage you to get with John, take him to coffee, go to lunch with him. I was deeply encouraged by the class and reminded again that the scriptures I hold in my hand are incredibly reliable. Uh, we have every reason to be confident in the scriptures. So that was Darren and uh, Ron, and I had the benefit of sitting and participating and receiving for the last two weeks. And I just want to say as we get started, it's something that I really love about our church family. If you're new and you're wondering who the, the pastor is, or if somebody's new, has asked you, you've been around for a little while, I'm like, hey, who's the pastor of this church? Uh, I just need to tell you, we don't have that person on staff. There is nobody on staff with the title, the pastor. Because we believe deeply that Jesus is the true and better shepherd or pastor of our souls. And the rest of us simply exist to work together as a team to point each other to Jesus, who is the true pastor. Um, and so even though I am one of the pastors, I need to receive just as much as you do. I'm a member of this family, a member of this flock. And honestly, I need to sit and receive probably more than most of you. So it was really good for me to sit for the last two weeks and receive. And I hope you were encouraged by 
Darren and Ron. So now I just get to stand up here as another one of the pastors, but not the pastor, to take my turn at pointing you uh, to our kind Savior, Jesus. All right, so here's my big idea from the text today, super short and sweet, unlike the sermon you're about to hear. Jesus knows how to rescue. Let's personalize it. He knows how to rescue me. Okay? Jesus knows how to rescue. Uh, just to show you that the main idea of my sermon comes right from the heart of the text. Look at verse 9. It says, then the Lord, Jesus, right? Then Jesus knows how to rescue. Now, there is a qualifier there. I'm sure some of you saw. It says he knows how to rescue the godly. So already right off the bat, some of you are like, see, no hope for me. He knows how to rescue the godly. What about the ungodly? Like, that's the kind of rescue I need. You're right, you do. Uh, don't lose hope. We'll get there. Jesus knows how to rescue you. Uh, three three uh, points below that big idea. Here they are. Uh, we're going to see these uh, in the passage. Rescue or retribution. There's no middle way. And I'm a middle way kind of guy. I like building bridges. I like finding middle ground. I like building, bringing people together. In another life, if I weren't pastoring, I think maybe I would love to be a diplomat of some kind. I love middle ground. The gospel is very clear. Like There's no middle ground. It's rescue or retribution. There's not a third way. There's not a third category. Uh, we're going to see rescue through Jesus. No other way. Uh, there is a way of rescue, but God the Father in his kindness provided one way. His name is Jesus, and he rescues anyone who calls out to him. Uh, but Jesus is the only way. No other way. And then number three, rescued to announce. That's for us. Uh, as sons and daughters who have been rescued in, we've been rescued in simply because the Father loves us and he's kind. But one of his purposes in adopting us into the family is that we would live as people, no matter where we go in this world, as announcers of the good news of the gospel. And when you embrace that reality, you will see that there is no better way, no more fulfilling way to live life. Okay, so those are our three subpoints under the one big idea, Jesus knows how to rescue me. But I need to say this. This sermon for a little while is going to make you feel like I forgot the big idea, <clears throat> and it's going to make you feel like I, f I lost track of those subpoints. Uh, I'm not forgetting the big idea, and I'm not forgetting those subpoints, but if sermons were like a day at the gym, today is going to be leg day, okay? <laughs> it's the day you, you hate, but you know you need, and you get under the weight, and you suffer through the reps, because if you don't, no other muscle group in your body will be triggered to grow, right? You need leg day. Um, today's going to be leg day. In order to make it through this chapter of 2 Peter chapter 2, what we're going to do is break it into four squat racks, okay? We're going to step into the rack four different times. We'll do like three reps for each set. We'll kind of take a step out, take a breath, and then at the conclusion of the fourth set, we'll get back to the big idea and the points. But if we don't do the heavy lifting in this passage, uh, our big idea and our main point, they just don't have any punch to them. Like you got to feel the weight and you're gonna, I hope so. We should feel, feel the weight. And honestly, let me just say this at, at, at the top. Um, some of you, as we work through this, you're probably going to feel a little bit crushed by some of what we're going to read, like in a despairing or hopeless kind of way. Um, that's okay. Uh, it's actually good for us. Uh, it's good for us when the crushing weight of the reality of life in a broken world and our rebellion uh, when we can see it for what it is and feel that, that weight of it and realize that there's no way to get out under, from under the weight except to run to Jesus who knows how to do what? Okay. All right. So that's, we're going to do our, it's leg day. Okay. Later this week when your legs are sore, uh, I hope they are. I hope God makes your legs sore all week just so you remember this sermon. Uh, I hope that as your legs are sore, you should go do leg day at the gym later today. That way it's all kind of triggering today. Every time you take a step and your legs are sore, you just remember Jesus knows how to rescue me, right? Jesus knows how to rescue me. When I'm crushed under the weight, Jesus knows how to rescue me. Um, nobody likes leg day. So when you show up to the gym, you kind of, you just talk, you tell stories, you delay the inevitable, anything but getting in the squat rack. So let me start you out gently since it's leg day. I'll give you a little story, okay? Uh, here's a picture. This is the Fuller Overlook Farm in Waverly, Pennsylvania. When I was a kid, it was just known as the Fuller Estate. Uh, one of my friends, his father managed the estate. And so uh, my friend and several others, we kind of had full reign of the place. 
This was the trophy house on the estate. It was a very wealthy family. They took regular hunting trips to the continent of Africa, killed every possible uh, species that was there, and they would bring them back on ships, and they were all mounted in this building. Now, this building looks warm and inviting on the outside, right? Like you would live here, maybe minus some of the trees. It looks good, right? You're forever home. Uh, all right, let's get an inside shot. Here's the inside of this beautiful place. So in the summer of 1992, when I was 12 years old, I had one of my first sleepovers in this, in this room. May have been my first. It was me. It was John Hamby. John's dad managed the place. Um, it was John Kaufman. And it was my best friend at the time named Ian Somerville. Ian, Ian was from Maine. And I haven't talked to that guy in like 20 years. If anybody knows him, I've tried to track him down. Please tell Ian I'm looking for him. So the four of us were in this space. When we first went in there, the sun was up. No problem. Well, the sun did what the sun does, and it started to go down. Shadows were cast on the wall. We had a fire in the fireplace. But come 10, 11 o'clock, that fire starting to die out. With every flicker of the fire, the light would splash up onto the walls momentarily. And as the light would splash into the eyes of one of these trophy mounts, for a moment you would swear it was alive and looking back at you. Or the light would splash and you would see it, and, and then the light would fade and it would splash somewhere else. And you would swear the same trophy you're looking at right now was just over there. And then if you flip, uh, flip, it, flip it around, yeah, there's the couch. I started the night out on there. I slept on the couch. Now, notice the background, the staircase, the dead zebras adorning the room. I swear all night long there was something going up and down those stairs. It was a windy night. The building was moving. The stairs were creaking. Four boys, 12 years old. This was three years before the release of Jumanji. And many years before the release of Night at a Museum, my 12-year-old imagination didn't need either of those movies to believe that those animals were coming alive in the dark and were just waiting for us to sleep so that we could be some kind of midnight snack. Pre-cell phone, pre-FaceTime, pre-internet, 1992, uh, the only way to get back to parents from there was to like three to five miles through the Pennsylvania wilderness that wasn't happening after nightfall, so we made it through the night. So one of us started on the couch. By morning, all four of us were on the couch. And we had one lantern. We had one light. You know what we did to make it through the night? We paid attention to that light. It wasn't going to go out, and we weren't going to move away from it. And any time we were intimidated by what was in the shadows, one of us, one brave soul, we took turns, would get up with the light and march over to the shadow so that it could be dispelled. And we were like, all right, dead animal. We're good. Go back to the couch, and we take our turns. Pay attention to the light. That darkness was insidious because what was in the shadows was intimidating. It struck fear into our hearts. And honestly, I had totally forgotten about that sleepover, probably because it's a repressed, suppressed memory, uh, which I will be speaking about with my counselor later this week. But this passage reminded me of it. Look at verse 19 of uh, uh, chapter 1. Look at this. Jesus, uh, Peter says, we have the prophetic word. That's what Darren showed us last week. We have words from Jesus. And then what does he say? To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp in a, shining in a dark place. Just like the lamp shining in the dark place of the Fuller Estate Trophy House, that was the only thing that made sense of the broken, dark, shadow-filled, insidious environment we spent the night in. Peter says, you will do well, man, to pay attention to Jesus' word, which is your only lamp shining in the dark world in which you live. It's the only thing that will tell the truth about the shadows and dispel the, the fear. Look, notice what he says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. There is a day when Jesus is returning and all darkness will be dispelled. In the meantime, pay attention to the light. Now, we need to pay attention to the light because um, in the same way, so the, the darkness was insidious in the trophy house because it was full of intimidating realities that forced four 12-year-old boys to cuddle up on a couch and cling to a light. I, think, I don't think we ever fell asleep. At least that's the way we would tell the story. We probably did, but I guarantee when we woke up in the morning, we were all hugging that one lantern. Like, we paid attention to the light. 
Guys, the darkness in our broken world is even more insidious than the darkness and the shadows in that trophy house. You know why? Because the darkness and the shadows in that trophy house were intimidating. That's why they were dangerous. The darkness and the shadows in this world, sure, intimidating sometimes. The greater danger is that they are inviting. Your heart speaks the language of the shadows. And we are regularly enticed and tempted and drawn away. We disbelieve God's goodness. We disbelieve the light. We stop paying attention. We hear the whispers or the siren call of the shadows. And we step in because they promise life and freedom. And we're met with death and destruction. The darkness is insidious because it's inviting and our hearts speak the language. And it's more insidious. That's what this entire chapter is about. Chapter 2, Peter's going to introduce us to what he calls some false teachers who are part of the family. These false teachers are actually influencing many people in the family to step away from the light and into the shadows. Dude, that's so depressing. If I were to be honest with you about my own heart, I don't need any help stepping away from the light and into the shadows. I do a pretty good job of that on my own as my heart hears, oh yeah, that's, that, that sounds good, I'll try that. And I step away on my own. And Peter's like, it's worse than that. There are professed Christians who will actively encourage you to step away from the light and into the shadows. And fam, that's part of the reason why belonging to a church is so important because like the four of us 12-year-old boys were glued to the couch in fear and would not let another person get away. Like we hugged each other out of fear. That's what a church does. We're on the couch and we're like, yo, you are not gonna be invited into those shadows and believe the lie that there's life in there. We will keep you on the couch. Okay, leg day. Let's step into the first squat rack. Uh, we're gonna do three reps. Heather already read verses one to three for us, so I'm not gonna reread them. I just wanna point your attention to three very important words. Those words are destructive or destruction, okay? Destroy, destructive, destruction. The second word is denying. And the third word is found in verse 2, many. Many will follow. Let's start with destructive. Um, destructive heresies. What's a heresy? That's not even a word we use. But when we use it, we think it's this distant, theological, heady idea, this big word, um, and that heresies are all in books or argued about in seminaries or they're a part of church history, but not part of everyday life. Guys, this passage is going to help dispel the myth that heresies are these big, heady ideas and actually show us how they, how they they show up in the everyday stuff of life, in the normal, ordinary moments. But the word we need to pay attention to is destructive. What we're going to see this morning, what the whispers from the shadows, the encouragement of people that would suggest a different way of following Jesus that would lead you to step into some shadows, they are all, every one of them, destructive. There is no promise from the shadows that will deliver with life. They will all destroy your soul. That word destructive shows up over and over again through this passage. The next word that we want to pay attention to is deny. Peter says um, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. That word's important because it helps us understand what he's talking about with heresies. So when he says denying the Lord, very simply, he's talking about denying Jesus. But these people weren't denying Jesus with their lips. Actually, they were part of the church family. They were at the worship gathering singing the songs, saying the verses, nodding during the sermon, nodding off, that is, because it's way too long. But doing all the things in the life of the church. And they're not denying Jesus with their lips, they're denying Jesus with their lives. Meaning they would say, yes, Jesus is my king. But in the normal everyday stuff of life, what their lives reveal is they have retained the right of kingly rule for themselves. They're still living autonomously from Jesus, lip service to Jesus, but in the everyday stuff of life, uh, I am still king of my world and I have a right over my choices. Uh, he links this denial of Jesus with the word sensuality. Remember when we, we met that word in Jude? Remember what sensuality meant, means? It's related to our sexuality. He's speaking specifically about their sexuality. But what it means is sensuality means 
life beyond the limits. Or you could say there's sensuality is licensed to do whatever I want to do or feel like doing. So the gospel would be very clear that God is our good father, Jesus is our kind king, has given us good limits within which as his created beings, we are meant to flourish and know life to the full. But when we disbelieve that, when we disbelieve God's goodness, when we disbelieve that he would give us limits, when we reject his kingly authority and we assert our own authority, we move towards sensuality or life beyond the limits in my sexuality or any other area of life. So that is the heresy that Peter is talking about. Uh, we got to simplify that as much as possible. He's simply talking about an unwillingness to live under the kind, kingly rule of Jesus and just kind of a daily practice of being my own king. That's what he's talking about. Now, here's a sobering word I want to show you, right? We got, we're almost done with the first uh, set in the squat rack. Here's rep number three. In verse two, he says, many will follow. Now, who's writing this letter? Peter. Can you remember a time in his life when he might have heard similar words about many of you are going to fall away from me? I kind of think that's why he chose this word on purpose. And I kind of think that when he wrote this word down, he probably had some serious like, flashbacks or memories to that night. And he probably imagined that the same way in which he responded when he heard many is the same way that all of us would respond when we heard the word many. Many people would follow destructive heresies and walk away from Jesus. Not me. Maybe many of you. Not me. Watch this. Matthew 26. Jesus had just told him, just told all the disciples, and many of you are going to fall away. Peter answered him, No way, Jesus, though all of them fall away, I will never walk away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, Peter, tonight, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I need to die with you, Jesus, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Guys, that is our response. We see this passage. We see the word many, which would imply that most of us, a good majority of this room, people who have a profession of faith in Jesus will actually be influenced by destructive heresies um, and that we would step away from the light into the shadows, simply rejecting Jesus' authority and exercising our own authority over our own lives. And we're like Peter, like, no way! Well, here you go, Matthew 26, 56. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled then all the disciples left him and fled. Maybe Peter wants us to be a little less confident in our self-assertion that we would never. And to that end, let's step out of squat rack number one, right? We did some reps. We saw destructive. We saw kind of this idea of denial and sensuality. It's all about authority of Jesus versus my authority. And then we saw that many, many of us will be influenced to step away from Jesus and to live life under our own authority, not his kind kingly rule. And if we do, we meet with destruction. And our gut response is to be like, not me. All right, so squat rack number two then is kind of a self-test to evaluate whether I have actually been influenced by one of these heresies, to see if I have, in fact, stepped away from the light, to see, in fact, if I have been invited into the shadows and walked in, to see if, in fact, I have rejected Jesus' authority in any way. So let's, let's step into squat rack number two. It's going to start with the second half of verse 10. This is going to give us a picture of kind of what... The, what Peter calls the false teachers, professed Christians who are rejecting authority of Jesus are encouraging other Christians to do. And uh, let me just kind of, I'll give it away at the beginning because I, I really want this to be simple for us. These heresies are going to surface in three key areas for us, okay? Let me give you three more words. So three words for squat rack number two. God, girls, and gains with a Z. Um, if you're ladies, uh, God, guys, 
and games. Uh, for the girl guys, we're really getting at our sexuality, okay? but I needed a G word, so there you go. Here it is. Squat rack number two. Let's, let's get under the weight of this and see if we, in fact, have been influenced by any of this. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Right? They're inside the family, not outside the family. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, can't be, can't be satisfied. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now there's a lot there. Let's just do a couple deep reps. If you, you have an advantage if you are here for the Jude series. Uh, everything right here was in Jude, okay? So some of this is familiar to you, but let's break it down. God, girls or guys, and games. Uh, well, let's just circle back on three of those verses. The first one is verse 12. Let's look at what it says. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed. If you remember in Jude, remember the story about there was an argument between Michael the archangel and Satan over the disposition of Moses' dead body. And Jude used that narrative to, to make a point that um, the false teachers he was concerned with were very quick to make bold pronouncements about spiritual things and spiritual beings when in fact they really should be keeping their mouths closed because they were starting to make bold pronouncements or declarations about things that they really didn't know about. Meanwhile, angels who knew better, who did know and had every right to speak out, they actually exercised self-restraint and didn't say anything, letting God speak for himself. So now... Peter borrows that from Jude to make a similar point, saying, at the heart of the is a bold and willful intent to say things about God confidently that he probably doesn't even say about himself in order that I can justify the life that I want to live. That's exactly what he's saying. Um, he compares them. He's not saying they are animals. He's not being savage. He's just saying in this way, they're like uh, irrational animals. They're just driven by what they want. So rather than submitting desire to Jesus, which is what we're called to do as followers of Jesus, desire can't be ultimate. If it's ultimate, it destroys you. We submit desire to Jesus and we meet life. The minute desires become ultimate and we don't submit them to Jesus, it's our first step towards death irrational. But he's saying they're like creatures of instinct in this way. They're blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant and it will lead to their destruction. Well, how do we do this? Well, some ways we make bold proclamations about who God is uh, so that we're not embarrassed by the God that we actually have in this modern culture in which we live. God would never say that. God would never set that limit down. If God really loved you and you, that's a desire that you would have, God would want you to follow your desire to its fullest extent so that you can actualize and be fulfilled and have joy, right? Almost as if we make excuses for God. God would never say that. God would never mean that. Limits? No, God loves you. He would never place limits. He wants you to be happy. We believe that for ourselves. And so then what happens? Rather than having the God who actually is and exists, we end up with a God of our own making because he supports my desires and he supports the way that I want to live. I mean, really, what's the last time we turned to the pages of Scripture and then walked away with a radically reoriented belief, social view, political view? When's the last time that's happened? Or do we have a track record of going to the scriptures to support the beliefs, 
political views, sexual views, and all the things that we already have. And wouldn't you know, like every time I go to the Bible, it actually agrees with what I already believe. Fam, most of us have a God of our own making. And it's going to lead to our destruction. For many of us, we have a godless Christianity because we have displaced God at the center and our spirituality is all about me and my happiness. That's kind of the bedrock heresy that Peter's coming at. And it trickles down. So let's do the next two reps in this squat rack. Um, The next one's related to our sexuality. He says they have eyes full of adultery. Can't be satisfied. You just have to keep going and keep finding and keep exploring. They entice unsteady souls and they have hearts trained in greed. Guys, once we step away from Jesus' authority, it trickles down into every area of our life. But I think for us, just like for them, one of the biggest areas where it shows up is in our sexuality. Once you reject God's authority over your sexuality, then you are the authority over your sexuality. Feelings are ultimate, and we've got to follow. If that's the case, we've got to follow every feeling to discover identity. Maybe you're missing out, right? We've got to follow these things. Really, at the heart of this one, there's a key phrase there. They have hearts trained in greed. Your sexuality becomes all about you. Did you know that when God created us, his good design, his good limits, created man and women, gave sexuality as a gift to be expressed within the bounds of a committed, monogamous, heterosexual relationship between a man and a wife, a husband and a wife, a man and a woman committed to each other for life. That is the life-giving expression of sex. I'm leaving one key piece of that definition about out. Any other expression of sexual identity or sexual fulfillment will lead to not discovery of yourself, but destruction of yourself, no matter what your feelings tell you. There's one key piece to that definition that's related to this. God gave sexuality to us as a gift for the flourishing of another person. But we have hearts trained in greed by our culture and by our own hearts, and we have turned our sexuality into our own fulfillment, and it becomes ugly. Insatiable for sin, when sexuality is all about your own fulfillment, you will never be satisfied. There will always be someone better, always somebody more attractive. And look at that, eyes full of adultery. We would say that in our modern way. You just undress people with your eyes. And it's virtual, so it's not that big a deal. It's online, so it's not reality. It's only fans, so it's not only a deal. It's, it's there, but it's not. It looks like, this is, what it looks like is a profession of faith in Jesus with space in my life for periodic or regular porn use. It looks like Jesus as my king, that's my profession, uh, but a willingness to, to freely step beyond the good limits that God has given me to find sexual identity or fulfillment somewhere else. Eyes full of adultery, cannot be satisfied. Did you know if your sexual desires become ultimate, you're chasing something that you'll never be able to find? Did you know, like, sexuality is sacred, but it's not sacred enough to be your identity. So if you make your sexuality sacred enough to be your identity, and you hang all of your identity on your sexuality, you'll never find it, and you'll never be fulfilled. Jesus said the pathway to fulfillment is self-denial. The way we self-deny sexually in the culture is to reject the idea that my sexuality is about me and that back to that definition, God has given me my sexuality for the good and the flourishing of one other person with whom I'm in a committed, lifelong, all things being equal relationship with her good, her joy. And when my fulfillment is secondary, guess what I find? Fulfillment, joy. But we have hearts trained in greed. All right, that's rep number two. We've added 245s to each end. So you should be feeling the weight right now. Okay, number three, we gotta, we gotta press, okay? Told you it was gonna be leg day. Leg day takes a while. Forsaken the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. This was, this was up in Jude. Uh, we broke it down there, just kind of a brief recap. Balaam was a, was a man who should have been faithful, prophesying for God. Instead, he chose to cash a paycheck by cursing God's people. He was a free agent and he was gonna go to the highest bidder. In other words, he was, willing what, he was willing to do whatever he had to do to get personal gains for himself. Some of us have demonstrated that we have an allegiance to Jesus with our lips, but the loyalty is absent in our lives because we have been willing to do things that we are ashamed of or to step beyond the limits in order to get gains personally, professionally, sexually, in our careers, in a dating partner, whatever it may be, gains over God. And I will come back to God in a later season. 
guys, heresies, they're not the things of scholars and books. This is the everyday stuff of life of heresies. Okay, let's step out of squat rack number two. How you feeling? Like if we're doing a self-assessment, let me just ask you, has there been any season in your life as a follower of Jesus where you have centered yourself where God belongs or you have, you have developed a God of your own making to support your own choices, views, instincts in life? For me, that's a check yes. Has there ever been a season in life where you have sexually demonstrated through your sexual life that you are not submitting to Jesus' kind kingly rule, but you instead have decided that you know better and you have exerted your own kindly kingly rule so that you can be fulfilled in the moment, gratified, because other images of, image bearers of God exist for your gratification. Check. Has there ever been a season in life where I have pursued personal gains and goals over submission to God, even if it will cost me? Yeah, check. All right, this, this, this is why you don't just have a spotter in the squat rack. This is why you have those rails because the weight's going to take you down, guys. That's what you have to feel right now. The weight in this rack has just brought us all down to the ground. And it's a little bit sobering when we read something in the passage that says God knows how to rescue the godly because it sure sounds a whole lot right now like we've got a room full of very ungodly people. So does he not know how to rescue us? Right, that's kind of the weight that we need to be feeling. And let me just show you the outcome. Squat rack number three is quick. It might be the most sobering. It's the final verses of the chapter, verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. You can step into the shadows. Your, your thirst will never be quenched there. They're empty clouds. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Notice the difference in the opening. In verse 19, remember, uh, the word is our lamp, and eventually the sun is going to rise. If you stay close to the light, the sun will rise. You'll know life. If you step away from the light and into the shadows to follow your desires instead of submitting them to Jesus, the sun will never rise. It will be a forever gloom and a forever darkness. Guys, this is just our Father being as kind as He can, sitting us down, having a heart-to-heart -heart and saying, trust me on this. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping. Yeah, that's me from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. I'm going to do this thing. It'll give me freedom. Nope. Whatever you give yourself to in the shadows, it owns you, and you are its slave. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, now notice this, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness, or we could say the kindness of the Father, than after knowing life and kindness to leave the light and step back into the shadows, right? Verse 22, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. You think you're missing out? You think you're missing out by not living beyond good, God, good, God's good limits? You know what exists beyond God's good limits? Vomit and mud. That's what he's saying. That's why the proverb's there. God rescued you out of self-destruction and corruption. Like, it's like his people, Israel, when he pulled them out of Egypt, and like days later, they're like, it wasn't that bad. We should go back. That's us. God has rescued us from that, the vomit, the filth, the excrement, the mud of our existence apart from Jesus. And you want to go back? Why? You want to go lay in that excrement again? If you do, it would be better. You would have been better off never have tasting God's kindness because it will be that much worse. Now we got to sit in that for a minute. Like squat rack number three. Like now we got four 45s on each end and you can't get up. So does God know how to rescue me? All right, last squat rack. Uh, we've had groupings of words, right? De destruction, denial, uh, many. That was squat rack number one. And squat rack number two, we saw, um, what did we see? God, girls, gains. In Squatter Act number three, we're just saying, we could summarize it this way. There's no good, no good, nothing good in the shadows. And now Squatter Act number four is kind of going to get us back to our, our big idea. Ha, my wife just texted and told me to wrap it up. She must be on the live stream. 
Somebody text her back for me. I'm working on it. Uh, love you, babe. Love you, babe. See, she's trying to keep me close to the light. Here we go. Let's finish it up. Verse 4. If God, okay, here's what you're looking for. You're looking for two, yeah, thanks, Ben. Keep laughing. We're looking for two words. We're looking for if then. Okay, you're gonna see a bunch of ifs. If, 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 and you're gonna want the then. It comes all the way in verse nine. Okay, here we go. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, he didn't, didn't spare them, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is gonna happen to us if we're ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sexual, sensual conduct of the wicked, right? Life beyond the limits. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then, here's our then, then the Lord knows how to do two things, to rescue the godly from trials or temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. We could summarize that last statement, defiling passion and despise authority. You're king over your emotions, feelings, desires, wants. Jesus is not. That's what he's saying. You reject, you confess Jesus' authority with your lips, but you deny his authority with your life. Okay, our three subpoints: retribution or rescue, no middle way. Notice in this entire paragraph, there were two examples. There is no middle way. You either, you either drown in the flood or you float on the ark. Example number one. Example number two, you either burn in the ashes of Sodom and Gomorrah or you escape and find rescue with Lot's family. No middle way in this entire paragraph. Guys, the gospel is clear retribution or rescue, no middle way. So if we have been humbled by squat racks two and three, there's no middle way for us. There's no explanation. There's no self-rescue. You drown in the flood or float to safety on the ark. You burn in the ashes of Sodom or you find rescue with Lot's family. Okay, sub point number two. Rescue through Jesus, no other way. Grant, we're not going to go to those Peter references, but I just want, I want, I want to show you this. I love that he uses the example of Noah and in the ark. Did you know that in 1 Peter, Peter says our baptism is like the ark? I love that. Here's why. There is no middle way, but Jesus, the Father, did provide a way. And just as the ark brought people safely through the floodwaters of God's judgment. So Jesus, who is the true and better ark, if you will believe in him, he will bring you safely through the floodwaters of God's judgment for your unrighteousness and your ungodliness. We still have a problem because we're like, God knows how to save the, the godly. And we're like, he says, Noah was godly. Noah was righteous. Lot was godly. Lot was righteous. I'm not. Well, I have really good news for you. The gospel is very clear. The only kind of righteousness that exists for people is a, what we call a received righteousness. Uh, you don't earn it or prove it. You receive it by faith from the Father. So we can, we can say it this way. By faith, Noah believed in the promises of God. Pro rescue was promised. He got into the ark. And God the Father safely brought Noah and his family through the floodwaters of judgment and brought them on the other side, rescued and redeemed. We too, we cannot rescue ourselves, but if you will believe in the promise of rescue that Jesus is the only way, he who is the true and better ark will carry you through the floodwaters of God's judgment that you deserve for your rebellion, and he will adopt you in as a son or a daughter, fully forgiven and forever kept. No other way. Finally, one more. Uh, yeah, just go ahead and go past that. Rescued to announce, no better way. Uh, I love how it describes Noah as a herald of God's righteousness. Fam, if by faith you believe in the promises of God, Jesus, who is the true and better ark, is your rescuer from the shadows, you bear the same title that Noah had. You are a herald of his righteousness. You exist here in Okinawa and everywhere that God brings you to tell people 
there is coming a better day because a better deliverer already came. There is coming a better season because a better Savior already came. Jesus knows how to rescue you. He has gone to the deepest, darkest shadows of this earth, and he has pulled the most defiled, broken, wounded people out of the shadows and brought them through the floodwaters of God's judgment, fully forgiven them and made them sons and daughters. There's coming a day when all the shadows of our broken world will be dispelled and all the darkness will be gone. All injustice will be eradicated. Jesus is coming back. There's coming a day. Fam, the sooner we realize that we have been rescued into the family to be heralds of righteousness, the sooner we will see, man, there is no better way to live the life that God has given you than to live as an announcer of the beautiful truth. Though we all deserve judgment, God in his kindness offers mercy through Jesus. All right, where's the camera? Babe, I got one last thing and we're done. Uh, can you text me and tell me what's for lunch? That'd be awesome too. I'm going to see if she texts, and I'll tell you what's for lunch. <laughs> All right, let's get the picture up here. We'll be done. Um, so, fam, in this broken kingdom, this is where we live, right? I had one night's sleep in the Fuller Overlook Farm, but we spend every day of our lives here. Maybe not intimidated by the shadows, but invited in by the shadows. And uh, let's just, look. Can we just have an honest family moment here? If we all felt the weight of those two squat racks, can we just be honest and say that we've all been enticed into the shadows? Like, can we all just be honest and say that there are hands reaching from the shadows, tentacles, like wrapped around your ankles, pulling you further in because you gave yourself to this thing thinking it would have life and now you're its slave. And fam, you don't know how to rescue yourself. So let me just ask you, what whispers have you listened to? What shadows have you stepped into? Where... Have you stepped away from the light? And then fam, look, it's pretty hopeless because you can't rescue yourself and you don't know how, but what's our big idea? Jesus knows how to rescue me. <laughs> That's really good news because I'm in deep. I have believed heresies. Much of my Christian life have been built on lies about who I am, about who God is, all the things. Fam, Jesus knows how to rescue you. What would it look like this morning for you to just open your hand to see Jesus in the shadows and to receive his rescuing work? To respond, he's there, he's pursuing you. Why live one more day in the shadows when you can live in the light? I think Zach's gonna come and lead, are you coming and lead us? And so I won't pray. Let's just sit with that. Zach's gonna lead us in a prayer of... Um, of confession, maybe we're singing first, I don't, I don't know, but let's just sit with that and reflect as we sing and then pray together in response.